All right, good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us, I feel like I need to explain what we're doing. Normally, on Sunday mornings at this time, we're studying through the book of Romans. And I think we're ready to begin chapter six, seven, six. You won't let me skip six, will you? Okay. Six, we'll begin that next week. We'll resume. But we've, during the month of January, we've been in the middle of a series called Membership Matters. It has been a few lessons about how the church works, how you work in the church. Today is the final chapter in that series. I mean, we've looked at how the church operates. We've looked at why we do the things we do. We talked about the ordinances that we take here at Fairway and why those are important. We talked about the way we make decisions and the distinction between our leaders, deacons and elders. We talked about congregationalism. Last week, we looked at who pays for all of this. And so this week, I kind of go from the frying pan into the fire because rather than getting easier, it's going to become a little more complex. And it only becomes that because so many church members today have never been taught this. What do we do when someone goes rogue, when someone starts sinning in blatant and unrepentant sin? What do we do? This principle is what we refer to as church discipline. But before we answer questions like when is that done and how is that done, I think there are some principles we need to know and to affirm. They have to do with the importance of church membership. These twin topics of church membership and discipline are essential for any discussion on how the church works. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about how the reformers viewed the church, and they had three marks of a true church. The first one was to preach the word. And most of us would agree with that. I hope all of you would. The second was the proper administration of the sacraments or the ordinances. And while you may think, yeah, that's probably important, you may have trouble thinking of how they could be done improperly, and that's okay. But that was their second mark, the proper administration of the sacraments. But then there was the third one that probably no one thought of, and the third mark of a true church was church discipline, the practice of church discipline. You see, the proper understanding and practice of both church membership and church discipline is necessary for the health of a church. You see, by membership, when we talk about membership in the church, by membership, a church establishes itself because, you see, Fairway Baptist Church doesn't have members. Fairway Baptist Church is its members. You are what make up the church. You are the church. Church discipline simply regulates the boundaries of that membership. 
It warns those and tries to restore those who are in danger of wandering beyond those boundaries. And when restoration is rejected by that person, by recognizing that some have wandered so far, they can no longer be recognized as members. That's what the church does in church discipline. So why is membership important? I think that's a fair question. We addressed this in our Fairway 101 class a bit, so I'm not going to go over a lot of it here. But the case for church membership is nowhere argued in the New Testament. You will not find a passage where Paul or Peter or someone else argues for the principle of church membership, but it is everywhere assumed. It is nowhere argued, but everywhere assumed. In 1 Peter 2.5, we learn that coming to Jesus is coupled with being built up as a spiritual house. One of the many images for the church. You see, Jesus desires to place us, to place everyone who comes to him in connection with other believers in the church. 1 Corinthians 2.13 states that we were all baptized into one body. You see, salvation is a community-creating event. Church membership is also implied by the commands of Jesus. The commands in the New Testament given to Christians, not just by Jesus, but by other writers in the New Testament. How about Hebrews 10, 24 and 25? that tells us that we are to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. <clears throat> and there are many such commands, more than we can go over today. In fact, I would encourage you, if you're not already attending one of our 9.30 a.m. Bible studies, Mark Carter is teaching one on these commands. They're called the one another commands of Scripture. When Jesus tells us to do this to one another, he's covering those. So check that out. Living a life of obedience to these commands seems to require a relational body similar to a church. It just makes sense. But one final responsibility requires a pretty official church membership. Believers are commanded to hold one another accountable. And when necessary, to discipline someone who is inside the church. So again, it's assumed that there is a church, that people are members of it, that it is a delineated group of people. 1 Corinthians 5, 11 and 12 says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. That means they're a Christian, or they claim to be. They bear the name of Christian. If he is guilty of, sexually, of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Those inside the church. And we see in church members that, uh, in scripture, church members are often referred to as members of the body or members of the kingdom or members of the family. We see all of these pictures of the church. So at Fairway, 
We believe church membership is very important. So we have some requirements for membership here. If you want to be a member at Fairway, there are some things you have to do. Of course, we've said it before, but we believe in a regenerate membership. That means you must have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. We allow anyone to visit our church. People who've never heard of Jesus before can visit our church. But if you want to join and be a member here, you have to have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. But that's not all. After that, you have to have followed that profession of faith with biblical baptism. And that's okay. If you haven't done that, we can do that here for you. But biblical baptism is the other requirement. But there's one more. We require a covenantal type of commitment at this church to be a member. And so we have a church covenant. And at the time you come through our membership process, you accept that church covenant. Now, for those who may have misplaced your copy, I can't imagine you having done that, or who have forgotten about it entirely, again, unthinkable, I've placed a copy of it inside your bulletin for you. So you'll have it forever now. You see, the New Testament portrays church membership as an active role. There are no passive church members. You don't just warm the pew. You are to do things as a church member. In Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, and then later in chapter 4, believers instinctively begin to accept responsibility for one another's welfare. They gravitate towards spending time with one another. I mean, friends, time together was and is necessary to fulfill the requirements placed on church members in the New Testament. If you're in Mark's class right now, I challenge you at the end of the 12 weeks to decide for yourself if you can obey the commands he's taught without spending time with anyone. You can't. The commands of Scripture require it. In Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9, Paul commanded the members in Rome to, to be devo devoted to honor and to leave, live peaceably among each other in harmony with one another. And again, those one another passages that we've mentioned are also proof. A degree of care and commit to, commitment to one another seems inherent in some of the images the New Testament uses to reference the church, things like family. I mean, Paul took it as axiomatic that members of the body care for one another such that all suffer and rejoice together. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 25. That there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. As a family, church members have a certain priority in the time and attention given to one another. Listen to this from Galatians chapter 6. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Who do you think that is? That's Christians. So we make 
Christians a priority, although we attempt to do good to everyone. A man named Stanley Grins wrote a book called Theology for the Community of God, and he says, their shared commitment to be disciples of the Lord entails a commitment to one another. If you're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, it includes and entails a commitment to one another. The church constituting covenant is a mutual agreement to walk together as people of God. The only way for believers to live out the commitment to one another mandated by their Father is by living in a covenant-like relationship with other believers. So I'm not saying that Scripture demands that all churches everywhere have a church covenant. But what I'm saying is to assist us in living in those covenant-like relationships we use a church covenant. You have it in front of you. And actually, I believe that churches who take membership seriously like this will more closely resemble the church as it is one day destined to be. The church that will one day present to Jesus himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or, or any such thing that she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. That's Ephesians 5, 27. So that's membership. You see that we have requirements for membership and we live in covenant with one another. All right? We have to understand the importance of covenant membership to understand and appreciate the principle of church discipline. If we're not covenantally related to one another, then I don't care what you do. But I have agreed as a member of this church to be bound to you by this covenant. I am to look out for your best interest. Not only am I to do good for others, but especially to the household of faith. Churches cannot maintain meaningful church membership without practicing biblical church discipline. And churches cannot regain biblical church discipline, the ones that have lost it, without establishing meaningful church membership. Jonathan Lehman gets right to the point. He's written multiple books on uh, congregationalism and uh, church discipline. What's his church discipline book called? Surprised by God's Love or something like that. Anyway, you can find it. Lehman, L-E-E-M-A-N. Surprised by something about God's love is the title. I mean, that's not the title, but that'll get you close. <laughs> He says this, an undisciplined church, church membership, is an undiscipled church membership. It will be weak and flabby and foolish and unchaste. That's pretty strong. But when you consider that the absence of church disciplines lets unrepentant sinners go on sinning as if we do not care about them at all, I can see his statement as being true. So what exactly is church discipline? And is it actually taught in the Bible? Well, Jesus gave certain powers to the church. We can start by saying he did not give some powers to the church. For example, he didn't give the church the right to use physical force 
to accomplish its, accomplish its tasks. We call that the power of the sword. He did not give that to the church. He gave that to the state. I mean, there are verses that support this truth. You can go to John 18.36. I think that's where a Jesus is before Pilate. And he says, hey, if my kingdom was of this earth, my people would already be fighting for my release. We don't have the power of the sword. In 2 Corinthians 10.4, I need to look that one up. It's something about we have the power to tear down arguments. This is Paul speaking, 2 Corinthians 10, 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. One thing that Jesus did give to the church is called the keys to the kingdom. Have you heard of that before? It's not taught about often. Jesus gave to the church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We can go to Matthew chapter 16, verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Surely you've heard that phrase before, but you might not know what it means. A couple of chapters later, Matthew chapter 18, which are the instructions of how to conduct church discipline. We read, if he refuses, this is the final step, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now you have to remember that the audience for Matthew's gospel is going to be Jewish people. So there's no one more despised in their view than a Gentile or a tax collector. So we are to view them as someone outside the camp, lost. Verse 18, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The keys to the kingdom of God, you have that authority. That is, the church has the authority to say who belongs to the covenant and who does not? It has the power to admit people. The church body votes for every member that joins this church. And you have every right to vote no if you have a biblical reason to do so. And the church also has the power to cast them out. So we usually refer to the power of the keys as the power of church discipline. Scripture takes discipline very seriously. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, one chapter, the Apostle Paul says five different times that the church should cast out this sinner. Excommunicate him. Most churches rarely practice church discipline today, even if they actually believe in it. But discipline is biblical. And it can be more or less serious. It can range from excommunication on one end of the extremes to just an admonition or a rebuke for lesser sins. But every church ought to practice it. And I want to tell you the purposes for practicing it. There are at least three. 
The first reason for church discipline is to restore a sinning, a sinning believer. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. To restore a sinning believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's a pretty dramatic way of talking about church discipline. But then he says, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Galatians 6.1 Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. You see, discipline aims not just to punish someone, but to turn the offender away from his sins, to bring about repentance. It's for his sake that we do this. It's not for some sense of personal enjoyment on our part. So church discipline is not a cruel thing, but a loving thing. Secondly, the Church discipline exists to deter such sins by others. In other words, we instruct the congregation as to what is and is not acceptable. 1 Timothy 5.20 is an interesting verse. It says, as for those who persist in sin, what do we do with them? Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. The third reason for church, church discipline is to protect the honor of Christ and his church. Romans 2.24 says, For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. 1 Corinthians 6. 6 but, brother, uh, but brother goes to law against brother. That means a Christian in the church sues another Christian in the church instead of reconciling with him. And then it says, and that before unbelievers, in front of unbelievers. Ephesians 5, 27 says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. We've already read this, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy without blemish. You see, when the church ignores sin, the world despises them. We're hypocrites. And the reputation of Jesus Christ himself is dragged through the mud. So church discipline protects the honor of Christ and his church. Now, discipline takes some different forms. We're going to talk about two of them. The first one is teaching. We call this formative discipline. Formative discipline. And everybody does it. You just may not recognize it. Formative discipline means forming spiritually mature believers through teaching and training. If you have children, I guess I should say, and you're a responsible parent, you do this. You teach your children positively, formatively. You're not just reactionary and corrective. This is an effort to fulfill the final mandate of the Great Commission. The last part of the Great Commission says teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. So this is the ministry of the church in teaching and training. Every church engages in it to one degree or another. I don't think 
we've ever been to a church that didn't have some kind of a teaching or preaching ministry, I don't know what they would do. Um, so formative, formative discipline should occur in two places at least. One is in personal conversations that you have with each other. And the other is through the preached word of God. What happens if a church doesn't engage in formative discipline? Listen to this passage from Hebrews chapter 5. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The church must make clear what behavior is acceptable to God. And it must present the gospel in such a way as to motivate obedience. I mean, people aren't motivated by denunciations and scolding nearly as well as they're motivated by teaching them in advance and teaching them the love of Jesus and the joy of living a godly life. Here's how Mark Dever compares formative discipline. He compares it to the stake that helps the tree grow in the right direction, the braces on the teeth, the extra set of wheels on the bicycle. It is the repeated comments on keeping your mouth closed when you're eating or the regular exhortations to be careful about your words. It is the things that are simply shaping the person as he or she grows emotionally, physically, mentally, and spiritually. That's formative discipline. And that's what we do here. Not only your Sunday school teacher and your pastor, preacher, the elders, but you to each other. But there's more. There's not just formative discipline, there's also corrective discipline. In Matthew chapter 18 lists the steps of discipline in cases where the teaching of the church has not had its desired effect and people wander away from it. Let's read these verses very quickly. Matthew chapter 18, we'll begin verse 15. It says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So, that's the verses. Here's a good definition of corrective church discipline. I think 
I didn't put the footnote in here. I think this is from Jonathan Lehman as well. To define that more specifically, corrective church discipline occurs anytime sin is corrected within the church body. You do it, I do it, it doesn't matter, it's corrective discipline. And it occurs most fully when the church body announces that the covenant between church and member is already broken because the member has proven to be unsubmissive in his or her discipleship to Christ. You see what the offense is? It's a sin against Christ. In a perfect world, I love this quote. Wait, there's another line before this. By this token, the church withdraws its affirmation of the individual's faith, announces that it will cease giving oversight, and releases the individual back into the world. That's church discipline. And I read this. In a perfect world, corrective discipline would be unnecessary because believers would be sufficiently sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. Well, all right. I should have just led with that. You don't want church discipline in the life of the church? We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's conviction. I saw a video yesterday. I have to stop looking at YouTube on the weekends. This is a preacher. It's, a, it's satire. It's not real. But he basically stands in front of his church and yells at them, not angrily, but pleadingly, to be good and stop being jerks. And the, that was his message, essentially. But the line that got me was, you people are making me look bad in front of God. And I love that quote. I laughed out loud. Dan, I wanted to know what was going on. I, I mean, so, when someone's sitting alone and they start laughing out loud like that, it may need some kind of care. But <clears throat> I sent her the video so she would understand. But, you know, sometimes you just feel like that. We see all of this instruction in Scripture, and if we would just be obedient to what we already know, none of this would be necessary. If we would be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's teaching, such as in Matthew 5, where it says, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Man, if we would just do those things. But unfortunately, believers sometimes succumb to the deceptive power of sin. And I'm here to tell you, it is deceptive. And they reject the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes they don't know that they've offended a brother. In other cases, they do know but refuse to seek reconciliation, which is when this process should start. I mean, look, if a person sins against you, sometimes, I would even say most of the time, we should ignore it. Because, look, we're family here, and love covers a multitude of sins. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. And then in 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter quotes that and says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins, but look, 
sometimes you can't ignore it. It is so serious or just the right kind of offense that it gets under your skin and you cannot ignore it or forget it. Matthew 18, 15 tells you to go to the person who has sinned against you. That means don't gossip about it. Just go. That's what we're instructed to do. You are instructed to go to the person, not to come to me. You go directly to the person. The church has the authority. If that doesn't lead to reconciliation, then you go again. And verse 16 says, but you take a witness or maybe two with you. And if that doesn't work, you take it to the church, the ruling body. And you'd probably need the elders' assistance there. We'd have to schedule a meeting for you. But you would be the one to bring it to the church. The church is authorized to make a decision about whether the person is guilty or innocent. And if they are guilty, the church has the authority to decide if they should be admonished or rebuked. Maybe they should be removed from office. Maybe they're an elder or a deacon, and they should be removed from office. And in the worst case, they should be put out from the body, excommunicated from the church. Not all sins should be the subject of this type of formal discipline. I mean, look, we sin so often that most of them can't be. In fact, in Romans 14, Paul talks about some disagreements in the church. They were not to be resolved by formal discipline, but rather by Christians of different views living together. There were some people who would eat meat and others who insisted on only eating vegetables. There were some who valued some days over other days. And Paul said, y'all just get along. This is not necessary for you to bring as a discipline. It's in Romans 14. So what sins should we exercise church discipline for? That seems to be the $64,000 question. Well, the Bible doesn't give us a specific list. Man, it would be easy if it did. Then we could just avoid those sins. And we'd never be placed under church discipline. I mean, look, sometimes church discipline is needed for things not in the Bible. Things like snorting cocaine. It's not in the Bible, but you should probably be disciplined for that. What about hacking other people's computers? Again, that's not in the Bible, but if any of you hack mine, there will be church discipline involved. But the problem occurs when we enact church discipline for things that are not obvious sins. I grew up in this church. I was a youth in this church, young people. I really was a youth at one time. And I was a youth here. And you could get in some serious trouble for doing blasphemous things like dancing or playing cards. So I know it's a Baptist church. Half of you may be going, yeah, so what's the problem? That's biblical no it's not biblical it's traditional it may be what the tradition of the church had been for the past 30 years prior and so the church enacted those rules wisdom must be used in determining what behaviors require discipline but scripture does give us some lists for you to consider so let's look at these mark chapter 7 verse 21 
For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. What about 1 Corinthians 5.11? But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting with verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. I think Paul's making his point pretty clear here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid such people. Those are some lists to consider. If you see that type of behavior going on in the church, we probably ought to do something about it. But look, we have to remember here that the goal is not to create a legalistic list of sins, but rather it's to help our brothers and sisters overcome temptation. I mean, if you need a formula, let me offer you this rubric. Formal church discipline should occur with sins that are outward, sins that are serious, and sins that are unrepentant, all three Factors should be present before a church moves toward excommunication. That's probably a good rule to take, generally speaking. But here's the deal. Because church discipline rightly practiced aims at repentance and then growth, the key element for determining how far one should go is the attitude of the offender. A person genuinely struggling to overcome sin and heartbroken over wrong actions doesn't warrant discipline. He warrants support and encouragement and help. Unless his sin is so severe that it undermines the credibility of his claim to have faith in Christ. Then it is time for church discipline. So let's spend just a minute on restoration. That's our goal, right? So what about restoration? Well, restoration occurs when a person genuinely repents. Sounds easy, right? Unfortunately, two things. Scripture does not provide step-by-step guidelines on restoration. And we can't see into someone's heart. So leaders in the church must apply godly wisdom to each different scenario. In fact, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 5, we see an example of restoration. In this example, Paul urged the congregation to reaffirm its love to this repentant sinner so sorrow does not become too excessive. 
How quickly this reaffirmation comes may vary as well in each situation. But look, when someone is restored, the celebration should be as public as the discipline. If we discipline someone in this room, if we turn off the camera because it's nobody's business but the church. So if we turn off the camera so it's not streaming and we discipline someone in this room and they are restored to the fellowship, it should be announced and celebrated in this room. It should also, restoration should demonstrate genuine forgiveness. That is the role of the church. The role of the offending party is to repent. The role of the church is to forgive. And also to thank God for his grace and this restoration. And that is the goal of discipline. As we close, I'm going to ask the praise team to come to the front, please. Two comments. Discipline should not begin with this, with the whole church gathering. It must begin in the discipleship culture of the church. Members must first learn to love and trust one another enough to share tough and encouraging words with one another. We talked about this last week in Sunday evening study about having people that you have relationships with that you're able to go to for counsel when you need it. Well, here the same thing is true. I need people around me who are able to share tough and encouraging words with me, whether that's encouraging words when I'm down or tough words of rebuke when I need it. And all of you do too. Secondly, when it comes to excommunication from the church, the goal is to remove the sinner from membership in the church and from admission to the Lord's table. It's not a certain declaration that someone is a non-Christian. It is rather the church's way of just stating we can no longer affirm this individual as a Christian in the way we once did through baptism and through admittance to the Lord's Supper. Church discipline is one of the most powerful tools a church has to grow in health. And it takes a healthy church to practice discipline well. I want to leave you with this comment. Church discipline works best when the pews are filled with people who respond to prodigal sons more like the father than the older brother. We will sadly let you go, but then we will sit on the porch and pray you back. Let's pray together.